Yeah, it's the classic Mother's Day. We like celebrate the moms and love on the moms. Dads show up. We just beat up on the dads. That's how Father's Day typically works. But uh, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Excited for you <clears throat> today. Uh, we are finishing up a series called The Art of Labor. It's been a four-part series. So if you're coming into this and you are first-time guests, first off, we're so glad that you made it. Um, you are coming at the end of a series. So there's a few conversation points that have taken place uh, up to this spot. And so uh, if, uh, if, if you would like to go back and re-listen to parts one through three to help make, have this make a little bit more sense, perhaps, um, then eastlaketricities.com slash talks is the site that you want to get going to. But we've been in discussion uh, about work uh, for the past three weeks because we all have opinions about work. Um, and early on, uh, we said that uh, from a Christian standpoint, Christianity kind of puts forth this creation story that talks about how you were kind of created to do work. Like before the fall, before, the, before sin and before any of that bad stuff, mankind was given a job. Like you, you were, there's something in you that was designed to produce stuff. So when you're, when you're doing your work, you're proud of it. When you're out of work, there's something missing from your life. Even when you retire and you work, you pick up, you pick up projects. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to build this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, whatever. You, we want to produce. We want to have something in us that steps back from that and says, I made that. I fixed that. I, I broke it, but then I fixed it. Now it's nice and new again. And, and uh, it's always a good, fun deal. But uh, the story then continues quickly from Genesis 1-2 about how we were created to work into Genesis chapter 3, which immediately we talk about the, the fall of work or the, the curse of, of, uh, of work, that there's a futility that comes with work, that there are thorns and thistles that pop up regardless of, uh, of our best of intentions. Um, <clears throat> there's going to be some difficulty and some futility in each and every single piece of our work. There are going to be days uh, in which we, uh, that, becomes, that makes so, so much more sense to us. Um, there are days, at, at whatever it is that you do, whether it's a school thing, maybe you're a high school student, you're just graduating from, um, from high school or, or in high school, or you, you just started a new job, or you're towards, you've been in this career forever and you can do this in your sleep, that you kind of push back from your desk every once in a while and you go, what is the meaning of all this? Why am I doing any of this? Um, eventually, like, your name is not going to be on the door anymore. Eventually, somebody else is going to do what you do. And I know that you think that you're indispensable to your job. You're not, right? You're, you're, we're all dispensable, like, and, and sometimes dispensable to the point that someday, soon, maybe, somebody, somebody won't be doing the thing that you do. It'll be some machine, or it'll be outsourced to somewhere else, or it'll be, like, there's all kinds of, like, this futility nature piece of our work. So in light of our created nature and in light of the futility of our work, then how should we live? How, what should we do? And how should we respond to any of that? So that's what the, the point of, I've built up the case for hopefully those two things, and now today we try and attempt to resolve it. So uh, even though scripture has very little to say on certain topics, right? There's not a lot of um, verses about online dating in scripture. I don't know if you know that. There's not a lot in there. But what there is a lot of are talks about and comments about work, especially in the New Testament. Paul shows up uh, occasionally writing these letters. Well, not occasionally. He's the most prolific writer in the New Testament canon. Uh, and in his letters to different people, he will take time to, uh, the, the, usually the very first part of his letters are talking about who your identity is in Christ and what his death has meant to you and who we are as Christians and how we are called to live in Christ. And then he goes into practical advice on how to exactly do that, how to exactly live in Christ, right? And so this is how you should live your life and this is the way that you should do it and this is what it should look like in your faith expressing itself in love, this is in Galatians and, uh, and all of these things. And in that kind of second half piece, we get a lot of like, advice on how to do and how to live out your work life. So in Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever it is that you do, this we looked at in this in week two, I think, whatever it is that you do, 
Do it with all of your heart. Like, make this thing work. And then, as a follow-up, in a verse that is gonna sound a little bit familiar, and every time he's doing this, here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, and as we're trying to do it, the goal of this series is to ennoble our work. For those in danger of viewing it as drudgery, he's trying to say what you do means something, but it also demythologizes, there we go, too much coffee, uh, demythologizes work for those in danger of making it their identity. There's a tendency where we can say there's a, so much futility to our work, why do any of it? But then there's this also thing where we throw and over-invest ourselves into it. It becomes our identity and we, become, we, we sacrifice our family at the altar of work. We sacrifice so many things. We gather w- what we believe about ourselves, about what other people say about us in, in regards to our work and our, our ability to produce versus who we are. So we can fall into it in one of two different ways. And every time he, Paul comes back and says, that's the danger that work provides with us. It can mean something, but it doesn't have to mean everything. And so let me talk about, let me give you advice in Colossians. You know, here's what you should do. And then he does it again in Ephesians chapter six. Here's this text. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free and masters. Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, immediately you might say, well, yeah, but Brent, this, um, this verse is about slavery. And as much as I joke about P&L or my boss being my master, like I am socially aware enough not to equate sla- uh, salary plus benefits plus three weeks of vacation with slavery. Very good. Don't do that. Highly recommend that. To understand this is to be able to say, yes, okay, but um, slavery in the Greco-Roman world looked a lot different than the African slave trade that we would oftentimes equate with slavery. This is more like indentured servitude. This would not be race-based. It would not be like for a lifelong thing. It would be for a tenured time, but it would be more of an employment angle. But not get, let's not get lost in the weeds in this way. Let's think about it in this way. If this is Paul's advice, this practical advice for people in these different two categories, how much more should it mean to us? If he's saying this about slave owners and slaves in this context, how much more so should that kind of advice be taken for us who find ourselves in the positions of being employers or employees? So in those thinking along those lines, if slave owners are told that they must not manage workers in pride and through fear, how much more should this be true of those of you who who employ people and have people who work for us? In other words, don't threaten them, which means don't use guilt or coercion to motivate people. Take an interest in them as people and invest in their whole lives and not that just their productive work capacity. A reminder, he throws out, that class distinctions don't really mean anything to God. Therefore, they should mean not very much or none to us as well. Stop it with this condescension and the demeaning attitudes as if you are inherently better than another person. And if slaves are told it's possible to find satisfaction and meaning in their work, how much more should this be true of workers today? If slaves are told, hey, you can do your job in such a meaningful way that there's gonna, you, you'll find a meaning and a purpose, and there's going to be something about it, the quality at which you do your work, and the fact that you do it not just when people are watching you, when your supervisor's watching you, but the quality stays consistent even when they're not watching you because you know you're working for God and not for man, that you're performing for an audience that, not, that doesn't just include the person who writes the, the, on the, you know, signs the, your paycheck or whatever. Like It goes beyond that sort of thing. This is all real, honest, genuine, practical advice for this. But listen, 
We don't live in this world, and perhaps it is a difficult thing for us to make a jump from slavery, even in the Greco-Roman world, into our uh, position of workplace today. So I'm going to update this a little bit, and I'd like to talk to you in a little bit more modern language if Paul was to be able to rewrite this or, or do a letter to you know, Galatians, Ephesians, East Lakeians, um, or whatever. Um, this would be, I think, a little bit a part of the letter. So I want to talk about the art of hustle. Hashtag hustle because that's how we talk about over-investing into our work. It shows up in all kinds of different posts from people who are semi or at least want the appearance of being successful, and they say the reason that we got here is because I worked for it, because I have a passion for my job. We celebrate the idea of passion for their job, and, or, or at least they think we do, or they want to celebrate the fact that they have worked so hard. And so if you search on Instagram, hashtag hustle, at least if you did this in the last couple of days, I'm going to show you a couple of posts of what you might see. Now, pro tip, do not add an R at the end of this because it proceeds to give you very different results, okay? <laughs> so stick with hustle. You'll be safer in that realm. I'm going to show you six of the top 12 of what I found um, looking on Instagram. Uh, and I don't know how like how the algorithms work. Maybe it's just people that I know. I don't know how that works. But Here's what I do know. I see enough of them out there to be able to be like, yeah, these are kind of legit. So here we go. Here's, uh, here's the first one. This is hashtag hustle. Remember the days you prayed for the things that you have now. Look at this guy. You can tell he's like, he used to be nothing, made it from the bottom. You know, what was at the bottom? Now I made it at the top. And all of the different tags on the side to be like, I got here because of what? Hustle, everybody. All right, next one. Um, this one is, this is now the car I drive. And the reason I drive this car is because I'm serious about my hashtag hustle. Keep going. Next one. Uh, this is what I used to be. I used to like sleep in like a, on the floor mattress, and now I'm in like this really cool neon colored office, and I got a laptop, yo. Um, so I, that was ten. That was nine years ago, and this is what I was. And then I paid it all off, and then I did it. And the reason that I did it is because of hashtag hustle. We know that. All right. Next one. Um, this is me at the gym, getting it in. <laughs> uh, uh, getting it in because I, I got these because of hustle. I was able to make it happen because of hustle. Next one. Uh, this is me standing in front of my dad's boat, my yacht that he owns, not me, this is this guy, um, and attempting to act like he owns that boat. I'm sure he doesn't, but that's fine. Um, but the reason he's able to take this picture with his iPhone is because he's got hashtag hustle going on. And the last one is this just buckets. Just At this point, we're just, here's buckets of cash. This is buckets of cash, and the reason we got this is because of hustle, right? Uh, when, when good things happen, we want to project an appearance or an image of ourselves that prove that we have done the work. We have invested into it. We did not get this. This was not handed down to us. This is a product of, uh, of our work. How did they get all these cars, these biceps, and these bags of money? Again, hashtag hustle. One of the worst things that people could say to us in this day and age is that we are lazy, right? Nobody wants to be classified as lazy. It's not cool to be lazy. Isn't it frustrating that morning people think that everybody should be morning people? And then when they call you up on the phone and you answer and you're like a little groggy, froggy voice, and you're like, hello? And they're like, and they say these horrible words to you. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I wake you? And you're like, oh, the condescension with which they say, oh, I'm so sorry. Did I just wake you? Makes me always reply, no, this is how my voice sounds after I get done running 12 miles. I'm so sorry. I'll be fine in just a second. And I just flip it right back up on them to be like, how far did you run this morning? Anyways, that's not true. I'm giving away my secrets. Don't call me in the morning. Okay, so that's hashtagging hustle and this idea of not being perceived as lazy. My um, wife and I were recently in a uh, 
small group, and one of the books that we went through was this book on the Enneagram. It's called The Road Back to You by Ian Crone. Great book. Um, and the Enneagram is like this new, uh, you've probably heard something about it. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's, it's a personality type sort, sort of thing. So Myers-Briggs, this, whatever, you know, I'm an otter, I'm a golden retriever, all that kind of stuff. These ones are just numbers now. They've got nine different personality types, and you find yourself in, in terms of one of these, and then you figure out a little bit more about yourself and who you are and what, what, where you go to in strengths and where you go to in weaknesses. And you're supposed to read it and then um, obviously do some sort of self-evaluation like, about who, who you think you are. And then if you're married or dating or whatever, um, it's really helpful to kind of discover more about the person that you're with. Um, and so I quickly discovered one of the ones jumped out to me. I'm like, okay, clearly a, th- a three. Um, but then as I'm reading, I'm trying to discern what Kylie is, my wife, and I'm having a hard time doing this. I'm like, a little bit of this, but maybe not that. There'd be something about it. It'd be like, definitely her, but then like, that's just not her. And then the one that I had the most success with was a number nine, which basically is a peacemaker, that are like a chameleon of sorts that can kind of become whatever people need them to be. Except for um, what they do in weakness is it says in the text and like whatever Enneagram Institute or whatever book you read is that they have a tendency towards sloth. And I was like, okay, that I cannot go to my wife. There's, that's not possible. And be like, this is what I think you are. And her read, you think I'm a sloth, that just would not go well for me. I'm just telling you right now, all right? Um, and I think it really is a barrier for a lot of people understanding what that is because nobody wants to be, I, lazy is one thing, but sloth feels so much worse, doesn't it? I just this last week filled out a character reference form for somebody who's trying to do some new employment. And I had to come up, not come up with, he's a great guy. I, can't, I was able to write down, collect my thoughts and write down really great things about it. But I had to give him the paper because he was gonna then distribute. I didn't get to go straight to the person. But can you imagine if I had written down, Paul's great, but a little sloth-like. Um, that letter would have never made it to the, <laughs> wherever he applied. It would go immediately into the garbage. Because why would you ever... I, I would rather be known as somebody who took home staplers from work than somebody who is sloth-like at work. Do you know what I mean? I could justify the stapler. I don't know if I could justify just being lazy at our work. And oftentimes we do equate sloth with laziness. And it's not just the animal, but like the slow moving. And in the Enneagram, it's like they're overwhelmed with stuff. And so it's like a paralysis by analysis type of thing. And we can kind of see that. We understand how sometimes we get kind of overwhelmed. And instead of doing anything and being aggressive at one thing or doing the wrong thing or whatever. We just like, I don't want to do anything. I'll just, I'll just be right here and maybe it'll, maybe it'll all blow over. You know what I mean? Head in the ground like an ostrich or whatever. And, and so that's, that's a little bit different because lazy feels like I know what I should do, but I just don't want to do it, right? So perhaps this isn't quite the right thing. Perhaps our equation oftentimes sloth with laziness is not quite full because we would never say, I, I don't want to be this, so then therefore I'm not this. And the reason that this one stands out is because it shows up as one of the seven deadly sins, right? For those of you who are old enough, I, I almost went into more detail about this, um, but then I, I was like, I don't know, this kind of reveals my age. But there was a movie called Seven with Brad Pitt in it, and there was like this murderer who killed in all of the three, seven different ways. Well, you guys remember the seven different deadly sins, right? We have, I'm going to read them because I don't, don't want to get them wrong. Um, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and daytime television. So those are the seven things that you could, just kidding, it's pride. Uh, those are the seven ways you can die. And I don't know if you remember in the movie, but the sloth one was like, I remember watching that one. It's like this dude that's like fat and like, it was so, I almost wanted to put a picture up on here, but like we're right at lunchtime. So I didn't want to do that to you. Also, I had nightmares for like, I was 16, I think, when I saw this movie. And I remember vividly, I can still see the picture in my mind. So I probably shouldn't have been watching it at 16. That's judgment. That's poor judgment on my part. Anyways, 
we understand it as one of the seven deadly sins in this way. But um, it's interesting because the Latin term for sloth means a little bit differently. And it's, a, it's called acedia, acedia. Ah, which means something without, right? Because so atheists are people who are without a belief in God. Um, so they are without, and the second word is, comes from the word kados, which means care, concern, or grief. Somebody who lives without care, concern, or grief. Grief. So even in the movie, they kind of got it wrong. It wasn't somebody who was so lazy they just ate themselves to death. It's somebody who goes through life without really caring one way or the other. It's indifference to duties and obligations. It's a life driven by mere cost-benefit analysis of constantly evaluating every scenario and circumstance that I go through in life with the question or the lens of what's in it for me. What's in it for me? How does this help me? And if it doesn't help me, I'm not gonna do anything about it. I'm gonna be indifferent about it. Yes, but it's hurting the community and therefore it's gonna trickle down and eventually it's gonna affect you. Yeah, but I'm able to kind of make a disconnect and justify it. I'm gonna take take inaction. I don't know if you can take inaction, but I'm I'm not gonna act. I'm gonna choose the course of inaction because I don't see how this benefits me. So I don't have any duty or obligation to do anything as a result of it. That is acedia. That is more sloth than just pure laziness, which is, I don't want to do anything because I'm lazy and I'd rather just let Netflix tell me something's coming on in 20 seconds if I just keep going. You know what I mean? Living life in a calculated way. Dorothy Sayers, um, she wrote that uh, article, Why Work, that Seth introduced at the very beginning of the series. She wrote a book called uh, Creator Chaos, and in it she talks about acedia. And here's what she says. Acedia is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. I care about nothing. You wanna do this? Go for it. You wanna do this? I don't care. Doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I really don't care. I can't give two craps less. I, I don't know how to give any less crap than that. You know what I mean? To not give a crap about anything. That's, that's the kind of spot that I'm in. There's a good chance, by the way, that people in this category, she's gonna go on and tell us, they don't look lazy at all. See, that's the problem with equating sloth with laziness is people can stay really, really busy and yet believe this about, have this outlook in terms of their life. And yet you look at their schedule and they're very, very busy. So it'd be weird to be like that really busy person who you just can't seem like, you try and be like, hey, we should catch up for coffee over the summer. And they're like, I'm like booked three weeks out. Is it something we could fit in? And you're like, wow, you're busy. Like, that's crazy. You would not, typically equate them with sloth because that's not the right, it doesn't feel like the right word. But according to Dorothy Sayers in this book, like acedia is exactly this. Here's how it plays out for us. We think that if we're busily rushing about and doing things, we cannot be suffering from sloth. She goes on later in her book. It says this, gluttony offers a world of dancing, dining, sports, and dashing very fast from place to place. We're very busy, but all we're doing is engaging in gluttony. Covetousness rakes us out of bed in the morning in an early hour that we may put pep and hashtag hustle. I added that part. I don't know if you know that. That was me just to kind of tie everything together uh, into our businesses. 
Envy sets us up to gossip and scandals. Wrath provides very ingeniously the argument that the only fitting activity in a world so full of evildoers is to curse loudly and incessantly and to use the clap hands emoji in tweets. Now, I added that part as well. So that is also a Brent addition. Um, but these are all disguises for the empty heart and the empty brain and the empty soul of Asidia. In the world, it calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. Without something bigger than yourself to work for, then all of your work energy is actually fueled by one of the other six deadly sins. You make work exceptionally hard because of envy to get ahead of somebody or because of pride to prove yourself to somebody or something or whatever, or because of greed or even gluttony for pleasure. In short, acedia is the subtle idolatry, the most subtle idolatry of all. It puts the cynical self at the center of your life. It's this life that says, I don't really care. It doesn't mean much for anything. Now, how does this relate to work and how do we know if we're suffering from acedia in our life, especially in the area of work since that's the area that we're talking about? Because I think it's more than just work, but we can do this in our workplace. I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work really, really hard. In fact, I'm gonna work harder than everybody else. I'm gonna do it out of uh, competitiveness and anger and, and all this, and I don't know, a lot of different things motivate me. I don't do it out of duty obligation unless it really does, if I can figure out in a calculating way how this affects me. So how do I know if I struggle with this? Because the problem too is you will never feel like you do because you don't feel much of anything. You'll never feel like you do and you're not worried about it because you're not worried about anything. Often you won't really begin to notice until you get some distance from your work and re-immerse yourself into other activities. This is the idea of, rest, that rest allows us the opportunity to potentially take a positive and have clarity, a positive evaluation of whether we are struggling, currently struggling from this, and are we doing this well? And I think this is really important for us, um, heading into a uh, season like summer. Listen, we've always done work series typically in like September, October, because everybody's coming back from school year, and we're always just buckling down, and we're going to be more disciplined this year. We're going to have a really good aspect of work. And I thought this was an interesting take for us because now, instead of that, we're going into a summertime mode, which is when typically, for most people, not all people, um, but you will work less because of this is when you plan for the kids' vacations and family trips, and we're going to go visit the coast, and we're going to go do this for the 4th of July, and we're going to all these kind of stuff. Now, I know, listen, if you're like a farmer and this is like, oh, this is my busy season, you're cool, that's fine. Um, this, that's different. I get it. But for the most part, um, you will engage in more rest over the next three months um, than you will probably for the rest of the nine months of the year. Now, whether or not you do this well may speak to whether or not you struggle with acedia. Because here's what we do. We rest, we go away, we stop doing work, but we never, we never take the time to evaluate our work in that moment. We just rest and we stay busy even within our rest. And then like a badge of honor, we come back from vacation. And we, when people go, how's your vacation? What do we say? Ha, I need a vacation from the vacation. I am exhausted. And that's like a, that's like a weird prideful thing for us. And yet all that means is, well, then you didn't really truly understand what rest is, that we think, I think, the scripture talks about how you were created with this rhythm of intense work and then rest to come back, reinvigorate ourselves to go back and do more work and even better work. And it's not a one-to-one ratio, and scripture talks about it. it's a six-to-one ratio. God works for six days, takes one day of rest, 
but he definitely takes that day of rest. He understands the healthy rhythms and he introduces this to the Israelites who are coming out of Egypt and they're coming out of a system of actual slavery. And he says, you, I'm gonna mandate as a rule of law for the people that you take a day of rest, a Sabbath day and not do any rest. You've come out of this slavery mentality that, that produces this idea of I am only the value that I can produce. And you gotta stop that. I'm speaking to your identity that you are more than just what you produce. So you engage in rest, because if you don't, then all you do is run in this, this, this spinning hamster wheel of produce, 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 and you became, because, it's, because work is futile, because of the futility nature, the curse of the futility of work, then what develops in our heart is this acedia towards this, that you just stop caring. I just thought, now I'm, I'm gonna continue to work because I need, you know, I like driving cars and sleeping indoors. So I, I, I want to be able to produce for my family and do this stuff, but I become indifferent to this unique way. So to practice rest is the disciplined and faithful way to remember that you are not the one who keeps the world running. You are not the one who ultimately provides for your family. You're not even the one that keeps your work projects moving forward. Now, a lot of times in this sort of uh, talk, this would be a chance for me to say, make sure you're taking time off of your work to be able to rest and, and invest in yourself and into your family and all that kind of stuff, like a Sabbath sort of thing. I get that that's kind of hit and miss depending on kind of what kind of work you do. So because of in light of the season that we're going into it this summer, my thing to you is this. You're probably gonna be taking some time to go to the beach, do Silverwood for a couple of days, go see the family, do some camping, do something. During that time, during that rest period, that like, Sabbath moment, whether it's a day, two days a week or whatever, I'm gonna issue you what I'm calling a summertime challenge. We'll, have, we'll post some stuff on the, on the uh, Facebook and uh, email something out this week in the weekly with these three questions to be able to walk through, that you would write these down now or, or get them on your phone or do whatever, and then at some point on your breaks this summer, these are the questions that you would begin to ask to develop with clarity, knowing that in this moment, I have probably the more clarity now than I'll ever have because when I'm, when I'm at work, when it's Wednesday at two o'clock and I'm just, I'm like in production mode, like I'm not gonna see this clearly. I'm not, that's not the right time to ask that question. It's not the right time to talk about it. Here's the first question. Is there anything I'm trying to prove with my current pace of work? Is there anything that I'm trying to prove with my current pace of work? Is there anybody that I'm trying to prove myself to? Question number two, am I using work as a means to chase away a sense of an insignificance? We live in a big world where we're constantly reminded. We, we live with our self-importance, but then every once in a while, we recognize that we're not that important. Um, and whether that's because uh, we got snubbed at an invite to a party and we found out about it, or um, perhaps somebody got the job promotion that we were like overqualified for and we can't make sense of it, and we realize we thought we were like super important to this company, and then we realized through like the payment structure that we're not. Um, so that feels in insignificant. Or we hear about the universe and the expansive nature of the universe and how what we do, even as America, even as a world superpower or whatever, like what we do just doesn't matter all that much. Like these are still, ice caps are still melting. Everything's going away in 12 years. Like you just, or the, the universe keeps expanding at this crazy rate. Like you realize the insignificance of yourself. And uh, in light of that, sometimes we can grasp at straws and invest everything into our work and over-invest and put our identity into this thing. 
And as a result, then what happens is that we try and chase away means or senses of insignificance through our work. And then finally, what currently feels like a burden? What am I carrying that feels like a burden for me in this current season of work? And what if, through asking these questions, we could free ourselves up from doing work for work's sake and instead serve the work and instead live out Paul's admonition in Colossians and Ephesians and elsewhere to work as if working unto the Lord? To do this not because we're trying to build a case for how cool we are or how good we are or what kind of value we bring to this company or to this family, but instead just as a response to the talents and the gifts that he's blessed us with. What if you could do your work in that way? It doesn't matter if you're a high school student, college student, adult. Like, If you could grasp this and have this, this would be a big deal. This last summer, uh, towards the end of the summer, uh, we did a project here um, in I don't, August or September, um, Andrew and I in the back made these sound, he did most of the work, I was here, he just told me what to do, but um, made these sound panels because we were realized we were in a, a, a theater with concrete floors and we're bringing these bounds in, these bands, bands, bounds, these bands in uh, and the sound just kind of went everywhere in here because of that. So we were like, we're gonna upgrade this, we wanna be more attractive to outside organizations and bands and whatever. So we Build these things. It doesn't really affect us on Sundays, but we wanted to do it, and they look cool. They look like stripes on the wall. It's like cat in the hat service is what it looks like. So um, as we're doing this, I uh, always like to, if I'm going to do a hands-on project like that, have some music playing or a podcast going, something to be productive in that way, right? Or something to kind of entertain my mind while I'm re- you know, just, just repetitively putting these and measuring these things. Uh, and how it would work is whoever got here first got to choose the music for the day, unofficially. Uh, and so whenever I would show up, it would be Coldplay. Um, and then when Andrew would show up, it'd be actually somebody good, uh, basically, music that's, that's uh, respectable. And he is, he's more of a connoisseur of, of, uh, of the arts than I am in that way. Uh, so one day I, I walk down, it's probably 8.30 in the morning or something like that. And I, I walk in and he's already at work and he's, he's doing some stuff. And uh, there's some free jazz going on with some, some stuff. And I'm, I'm like, dude, this, I feel like I'm, on the back patio at Bookwalter or Bernard Griffin or something like that. Like, this just feels like I should be eating food at a winery and not making sound panels with insulation that gets in your lungs. Anyways, um, and so I begin to ask, you know, who is this? And he he says, it's John Coltrane, and it's his favorite artist. And I I was kind of familiar with the name, but not really any of the music, and they just released some new stuff, even though he's been dead for several years. And so he introduced me to the world of John Coltrane. It was interesting because in this research for the series, his name came up again as somebody who has something to say about work. If you don't know John Coltrane, he's a free, free jazz saxophone player and composer. Um, he wrote, uh, he was in the Navy, and he wrote a lot in the 40s, 50s, 60s is when he became, kind of became big time popular. He's probably like most artists, right? This idea that you start off doing the music for the music's sake and you think if I get really good, if I'm successful, if people applaud and appreciate me, then I'll know I'm significant. I'll know that my life is finally worth something. Going through the, the, the thing of producing, producing, the funny thing about music, like, like several other industries or creative, especially creative industries, is the moment that you create something and put it out in the world and it gets a positive reception, um, people automatically ask, when's the next one coming out? 
when's the next album coming out? You hear that. You, you listen to interviews from like famous creatives and that pressure to produce the next thing is like immense and intense. Or you watch this week as the Toronto Raptors beat the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals and the post-game interviews on the court. I mean, they're celebrating, they're, they're getting ready to celebrate and it's always, the question from the reporter is always, what, what does it look like for you next year? How do you repeat this next year? And the response from them is, I would like to really enjoy this moment if that's at all possible. We'll start thinking about that tomorrow. But it's always the next thing. It's always what's coming up next. And maybe you work in an industry that's like that. You get something, you hit some great goal, you do something, and then immediately when, the, when it's supposed to be celebration mode, all your mind can think of is the next thing. And you find yourself going, all I'm doing is like, it, like this, it's not fun anymore. It feels like work. It used to be creative and fun and now it feels like just work. So Coltrane has a brush with mortality. He nearly dies of an overdose um, and has a, like a, basically a come to Jesus moment more than anything else. Becomes religious as, as people sometimes do uh, when, when those things happen. And in 1965, he wrote an album called The Supreme Love. Um, and in it, he writes in the liner notes of the album, which is basically like if it was a book, it'd be the preface of the book, a little dedication or a, in honor of sort of thing. And here's what he writes in that. He says, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. I feel like this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album is a humbling offering, humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. In other words, what he's saying here is, for a while, it was produce, 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 and then he goes in. He records this album in one sitting um, and then produces something that he says, um, I humbly ask to be given the means to, to, and the privilege to make others happy through music. I don't do this anymore for me. I do that, I'm, I'm recognizing, I'm stepping off the train of feeling like I have to produce this, whether I've been contractually obligated to produce four albums the next six years or whatever. I, I just wanna do music for music's sake and have it be something that I'm proud of, but like more importantly, that God is glorified through. Interesting take on it. And he feels like he was successful in this. Uh, in the book, The Call by a guy named Oskinis, he, he writes about how a friend talk, of John Coltrane's talks about how one night in, on the live tour performance of uh, the Supreme Love album, after an exceptionally brilliant performance of his tour, he stepped down from the stage and was heard to say audibly, like his last words before he left the stage, was nunc dimittis which is basically this in Latin, now you dismiss. He yells this out and people don't understand what it means, but it, it, he's trying to say that he's saying, now you dismiss, now you dismiss. Here's, that's, here's what he's doing right here, right? There's a story in Luke chapter two about a, a Jewish priest who works in the temple who his prayer to God is, before I die, I would love to set my eyes on your Messiah that you have promised to send. And uh, the story goes, he was granted this promise, the angel shows up, grants him this promise, but he's deaf and he can't tell anybody about this. And, uh, and then one day, a young girl named Mary shows up with her fiance, maybe husband at that point, Joseph, with a baby in tow and his name is Jesus. It's like a child dedication like we did in first service and they, they hands him to the priest. The priest looks at him and his comments shows up in uh, Luke chapter two. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart 
in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now you may dismiss me in peace. It was, it was as if everything I've worked for has come to this, and I no longer do it for anything else other than, like, you, your glory, your, your everything about this is all about you. I can now walk away from this feeling good about what I've done. Coltrane steps up, delivers this brilliant performance, walks off and goes, that, that is now what I've lived for. That is now I can depart in peace. It was almost as if in that moment he felt a release from the work, as if in that moment he realized he didn't have to keep making music for his own sake. He did it for the music's sake, for the listener's sake, and for God's sake. When your heart and my heart come to hope in Christ and the future world, he's guaranteed to us. When you're carrying what he describes as his easy yoke, you finally have the power to work with a free heart. You can accept gladly whatever level of success or promotion or title you get in your job or don't get in your job. Because he's called you to it, you can work with passion and rest. You can work with, um, with intense focus, but also intense rest, knowing that your work means something, but not everything. Listen, that is my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself, that when it comes to labor and our approach to labor, I want you to do your work with excellence because it means something, but also with the reservation in your mind, the caveat, the asterisk, yeah, but not everything. It doesn't mean everything. I invest into it. I give wholeheartedly to this. I work hard. I serve the work, but ultimately I know my identity comes from more about what he says about me and whatever accolades and whatever anybody else or anything else could say about me. And may we one day walk away from our desk, our office, our church, our school, our store, our business, or whatever, and say with joy, satisfaction, and zero regrets, now you dismiss. And now you can dismiss your servant in peace. I've done my work. I've, I've given of myself. I've done it with the best excellence, and I've made the best use of the talents and the abilities that you've given to me. And now I rest in this. I want that to be true for your work, for your career, for my career. As we learn and try and put in practice what we've learned about in the art of labor. Let's pray. Father, uh, we know it's not easy. We know the temptation is, again, to either fall into like apathy towards work or over-invest into it. May we find and live within that delicate balance that it means something but not everything for us. May we work hard. May we be people who have a genuine, re genuine respect for the work. May we produce things that take effort, that are not cheap, that reflect um, trial and error and trial and error and trial and error. May we inch closer towards this idea of the ideal or the perfection. May we not be overwhelmed by it. And may we trust first and foremost in what you say about us as to our value and our identity and not our work. May we work as if it means something, but not everything. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. Courage to act on it in your name. Amen.